Okay, so as we're discussing Hebrews chapter 12, it brings us into the fifth and final primary warning in, in the book of Hebrews. And so if you've got your notes, we're on the third section. And as I said, we're going to, if not tonight, we're definitely going to wrap this up next Friday night. 13 is going to be, you know, a pretty quick read. It's There's nothing there that um, has not, you know, we've not been exposed to and that's not been talked about a great deal in the rest of the New Testament. So um, it works out good. We end the series right at the end of the youth group. So I'm going to go right into the notes here just to recap, just to cover some verses that we covered last week. Uh that the the journey of the child of God is akin to a race and that is what how it is that is the metaphor that it is presented to us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witness let us run with endurance the race that is set before us verse 2 looking looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we're, we're told right up front that this is a race. And again, the, you know, the great cloud of witness. Um, a, again, if you can imagine a great arena. Several times now I've used the uh, you know, Circus Maximus in Rome, great arena. You see 250,000 spectators, and they would have chariot races and all kinds of races on this oval, long oval track that, you know, literally went for, you know, a mile and a mile and a half. <coughs> and the saints are up, those who have gone before us, they're kind of like up in the stands cheering us on to, to, to run this race. And so <coughs> when you run a race, you're, you you know, you focus on an end point, right? There's something that you keep your focus on in order to keep going. So <coughs> when I was able to run, you know, a few years ago, I would always fix my mind on the five-mile point. You know, I used to run five miles two, three times a week. And that's what I would focus on. So here we're told to keep our eyes focused on Christ, right? So we keep our focus in the right direction. Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So uh, whenever we think that, you know, we've got it rough, that we've got it, uh, that we've got it bad, then we just need to stop and think about what the Savior endured for us, right? So the reality is, if you're maintaining any kind of witness for the gospel in this world, and, and, and many Christians are not, but if you're maintaining any kind of witness in this world for the gospel, you're going to come under persecution. Now, persecution, you know, we tend to think of persecution as the, you know, the being thrown into the ring with lions, but there are all kinds of types of persecution. Don't forget, we have an adversary, right? And, and while that adversary may not be himself directly focused on us, he certainly has you know, a great company of subordinates at his disposal. And so persecution comes in many different types of forms. When you're, when you're, when you're living in your call to be a witness for the gospel, to be a witness for the truth, right? So they could come in the, in the way of finances. It could come in the way of health. It could come in the way of, 
relationship issues. It come, the persecution is not strictly related to that external type of persecution that we, that we think about when we think of what the Christians endured in the early, in the early history of the church, nor what they will endure during the Great Tribulation, right? So I've often said, and I've often considered that the tribulation, uh, that the that the persecution that we endure is in many ways much more dangerous because it's much more sublime. Right? It's a persecution that leads us away by degrees from the truth and from our witness to the gospel. So we need to keep our focus in the right direction. Yes. So in some sense, it doesn't even have to always appear to be monetary blessing. No. No, sure. Monetary blessing. Sure, sure. So you, you know, you could be, you could be a young, you know, a young teenage man, or for that matter, a young married man, or for that matter, even a middle-aged man, and you're, and you're walking, you know, you're you're walking, you're doing your best to follow the gospel, to follow the teachings of Christ, you know, you're being a an active witness for the gospel. When I mean an active witness, it's not just words. You're actually living it out, you know, and uh, and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, the adversary brings, you know, a, a beautiful woman your way, you know, the seductress, you know, the, the flatterer. It's all, you know, it's talked about extensively in the book of Proverbs, right? The immoral woman, you know, who flatters with her lips and it says that her lips drip honey, right? Which means she's very enticing. That's a form of persecution. And how many Christians have fallen to that type of persecution, right? They're just boom, and down they go. I mean, one of the first preachers that I really listened to when I first got saved was David Hawking. Uh, David Hawking was just a brilliant preacher. You know, he was, he was brilliant. And, you know, he had a big church out in, I think it was California. And, uh, you know, he great ministry. Guy was a great Bible expositor. And uh, he fell into immorality, you know. And uh, a lot of people were, a lot of people were devastated by that. And I, you know, and the way I found out about it is I, you know, I always took a nap before I went to work at night. And. I had gotten up and I was getting ready for work and my wife was watching with 620, I think it was 2020 or one of those night shows that were on, you know, like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And she, she, I was in the dining room and she said, isn't this the guy who you listen to? And they were doing a news story on him on, you know, on, on it was, I think it was 2020, you know, and how he had fallen into immorality and so, so persecution comes in many different ways, right? And so, to your point, it could seem like it's a good thing in the short term, right? What does the scripture say? There's, there's, uh, there's pleasure in sin for a season, yeah. right? Uh, okay, so w we have to keep our eyes focused on God. We have to keep focus on the sovereign will of God. The Father deals with us as sons and daughters and in the race, the journey up the mountain. He puts us into situations that demand that we lay aside those things that hinder our progress and threaten to bring our climb to a full stop. Right? This is the journey. Right? This is, this is it. This is the journey. Whatever, whatever weight you're carrying, 
uh, God is going to force you. He's going to bring you into situations that it's going to cost. It's going to cause you to to you to to make a decision. You're either going to shed that weight, or it's going to hinder your spiritual progress. It does. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it can be a hindrance to your spiritual progress, right? And so you know, I, I you know I've I've come to believe that you know so you know one of the questions you know you talk about someone living in their own heads right well that's me in spades right I live in my own mind and here I am you know I'm still on average on average five or six days a week putting two hours a day into Bible study and I'm sitting there thinking to myself well why am I doing this not like I'm a pastor anymore I mean you know I don't preach I don't you know, I teach, you know, history and theology at, at the junior high level. Why do I do this? And then it suddenly dawned to me that the knowledge that I am amassing now, I take with me into eternity. So it comes with me, you know. I think we have this false notion that the minute we blast off into eternity, we have all knowledge. We'll certainly have clarity of vision, but that doesn't mean that we have all knowledge, right? And so the things that I learn in this life will come with me into eternity. And so uh, aside from the fact that there's no greater proof than sonship than when you study the scriptures and you've read the same passage, you know, God knows how many times in your, in your walk of faith and all of a sudden you see something there that you just never saw before. Yeah. And there it is as plain as day. That's wonderful proof of sonship. Right, because that's the Holy Spirit showing you those things. So God brings us into those situations, you know, to, to and we have to make a decision at that point. And you know, uh, um, we talk about God's sovereign will, and we talk about, uh, you know, the, that God ordains everything. But I think He also ordains these moments into our life as well, where we're 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 confronted with a choice, right? How that all works together with the sovereignty of God, I've, I've tried to figure it out, and I'll never, figure it out, I'll never figure it out, at least not until I get into eternity, right? But we have to be careful that we don't fall into a sort of fatalism, right? I mean, there's a difference between free will and the power of choice. Most people confuse those two things, right? And so we do have the power of choice. Our power of choice, of course, is subordinate to the power of choice of those who are in authority over us, right? So, so we have the power of choice, and I think there are those moments in our lives where God brings us up to something and says, okay, well, you got to make a choice, and we choose wrong. Well, what does that mean? That just means that we get to go through the test again, and usually it's more difficult the next time around, right? So... So God brings us into those situations. And in point of fact, this is a sign of God's love for us, mm -hmm. right? The things that we need to do to get past these difficult times and complete the race up the mountain, we need to get back to doing the work that God has called each and every one of us to do. That's what's represented by strengthening the hands that hang down, right? Someone asked me a question today via messenger. Uh, they were... I don't know, they were watching some sort of video on YouTube where uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy, 
let me check my phone real quick. At least I get the passage right. Um, No. So this person here, okay. So this person here is producing a video and, and they're equating the mark of the beast as a sort of perversion of what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, you know, about the frontlets and bind them around your hands. You know, well, let's, let's turn there for a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. Kind of getting off on a rabbit trail here, which does not bode well, but. <laughs> At least you recognized it. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, we know this as. Deuteronomy 11, 18, and 19. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand. Right? So that phrase there, bind them as a sign on your hand. And, and the Jews have what's called, I believe it's the tefillim. The tefillim. But the tefillim is a perversion. This verse is metaphor. It's meant to be taken metaphorically. Right? It's not meant to be taken literally, which is what pharisaic judaism did they took this literally and so they wrap the tefillim around their hand they do it every day yep. right and then they have the you know the the, the little box the, you know that they wear on the head and it's a it's a perversion of this is to be understood metaphorically right and so this person here is saying that the mark of the beast in revelation is somehow a perversion of what this is and i said no that's not correct that, that's not correct. It's not correct at all. So, what does any of this have to do with what I was talking about in Hebrews chapter 12? Well, the hands that hang down, right? So, when we, when we read that verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands that hang down, it's referring to getting back hands that have become weakened, right? Or muscles that have atrophied through non-use. So we're, it's metaphorically speaking of getting back to what God has called us to do. God has called you to do something if you're a child of God, right? So we need to get back to doing the work that God has called each and every one of us to do. We need to, we need to keep moving in the direction that God has called each of us to walk. You know, I've used the metaphor of climbing uh, Everest. You e either, once you stop moving, you start dying, right? And so, so we need to be doing what God has called us to do. We need to be moving in the direction that God has called us to move, right? And what is that direction, right? So let's talk about direction for a moment. When we talk about direction, what do we mean when we say that we need to keep moving in the direction that God has for us to move in? Well, number one, it means that if God has called us to a specific, if God has called us, then he's called us to a specific or specific task that he wants us to accomplish. And rest assured, when those tasks are accomplished, your ticket gets punched and you get brought into eternity, 
right? Not one second before that. So it's, it's something that God has given you to do, but there's more in the direction that we are to be moving is to be moving progressively into the, into the uh, conformity to the image of the sun. So there's direction there. So we're, we're to be moving in that direction. And we have to watch out for the byroads that lie along the way that seem to go up the mountain an easier way, but do not. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It's dedication again and shedding of weight. There must always be a careful and intensive self-inspection program in progress to prevent the downward spiral. A downward spiral is falling back from the grace of God. You're not walking after God anymore, but away from Him. Your fellowship with God is growing distant and this is dangerous because in most times it's beyond the range of our perception. We don't realize it's happening yet. A root of bitterness springs up and causes you trouble. There's a movement away from fidelity to fornication or infidelity. Meant, this is meant in the, you know, in the spiritual sense. And a movement away from sanctity, dedication, and purification to profanity. And usually what ends up happening, I've seen this happen countless of times, countless times. You give up and you go back to the anesthetics that the world has to offer because the bitterness has taken over and the pain has become intolerable. There is a movement away from gracious mercy to judicial blindness. Verse 17, which we covered last week, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, now this is speaking of Esau, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He couldn't go back. He couldn't retract his decision. There was no way back for him. Okay. Um, so, it's not speaking here about a loss of salvation, right? But it's speaking about a loss of fellowship with God on this side of eternity. This is not... It's not, the reality is, is fellowship with God in this life, it's not static, it's dynamic, nor is it equal across all the spectrum of those who are believers. It's not. You, the, the, the depth of your fellowship with God is predicated upon the depth of your of your obedience to him, obedience to him, not only in doing, right, a.k.a. Mary and Martha, right, but also in learning, in learning about God, in being with God in the scriptures. You know, when you are, when you, when you are reading the Bible, you're essentially involved in a dialogue. It's a true dialogue. You talk and God talks back to you through his word. Or you ask God questions and God answers them. Right? So it's when you're reading the Bible, it's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And in the, in the course of that dialogue, you get, to, you get to get a real sense of the personality of God. Right? So it's not equal across all believers. It should be, but it's not. That's the reality of it. You brought up a really interesting point here. 
только и вернуть выплаты, надо просто послушать Yeah, and here's another thing, you know, uh, depending upon where you are in your progress, in your, in your walk with God, uh, all of a sudden, you know, the genealogies and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, well, they're not dull anymore. There is a wealth of treasure in those books. I mean, you've, they, well, they are, but you've got to read them You've got to read them with a magnifying glass, and you've got to ask questions. Why is this here, right? So, so uh, that's just the way it works. Okay. All right. So this is the greatest folly that can befall a child of God on this side of eternity, because it ultimately represents a disdain and irreverence for the one whom we have been called to worship and serve. And that's, again... He's, getting, he's going back, there's a reference back to what we read in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, where you could go so far in this that you may be locked into spiritual immaturity for the rest of your life here on planet Earth. And what happens when you're locked into spiritual immaturity? Well, the very thing that we've been talking about doesn't happen. You never develop the closeness of fellowship with God that you have the potential to develop in this life. And then once you get on the other side, don't forget, we all got to stand before the Bema seat. And so there's a loss of rewards. So anyway, okay, moving on. Now we get into the two Zions. The earthly Mount Zion, which gives us the penalty for disdain and irreverence. Verses 18 and 19. For you, not, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and, and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkest and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And you can read all about this in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. But notice that it was not the words that were spoken by the Lord that so frightened the people, but the voice that they heard. They begged that they might not hear this voice again. Hebrews 12, 20 and 21 said, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. I believe here the point was one of fear because to hear the voice of God was both fearful and yet irresistible. What was that? Uh, was it Homer or the Iliad? You know, the, the, uh, the Sirenes? Well, which one was it? Homer? The Odyssey, where, you know, they couldn't resist the voice, but to be drawn to the voice was to be drawn to death, right? So they were afraid of approaching God with irreverence, and yet they knew that to hear the voice would irresistibly draw them to the mountain, and they could not endure, that is, they could not bear that. 
So now a comparison is made. So now, you know, we don't need to go back and look at all of those, at all of those passages. I mean, you know, you remember, you know, everything, if anything came and touched the mountain, right? Man or beast that would be immediately killed, right? And you could only come up the mountain by invitation, right? And so they had to wash themselves. They had to do all of these things. And then, you know, when the Lord descended on Mount Zion, there was earthquakes and thunder and lightning and, and all kinds of things going on. And it was absolutely terrifying. So now the comparison is made if, if, if that was the penalty for forsaking that voice, right? And that's where the covenant, you know, the covenant was given and how, how God judged ignoring that voice and ignoring what was given to them in the covenant, how much more so, right? Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God who in, in former times spoke in various ways by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. So there's a finality of that revelation and the supremacy of that revelation. So how much greater will be the penalty if, if we... If the voice of the son, if the penalty was so great for ignoring the voice from Mount Sinai, how much greater the penalty for ignoring the son? Okay, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we're called to the city where God lives, the city where there is an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly, that is a festal post-race, post-summit gathering, and the church of the firstborn, the gathering place of the first called out ones. The spirit, on the next page, the spirit, of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, and to the end of our journey, which we can read about in Revelations chapter 4. This is where the road we are on leads to. The closer we get, the clearer we hear God's voice, and the more irresistible its draw becomes. As we make the journey to the summit, we better pay attention to what this voice is speaking to us. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. To refuse uh, is to seek to avert by entreaty. The Jews at the earthly Mount Zion entreated Moses that he might ask God to him, and he in turn would speak God's word to them. When you get near the place where God dwells, all the impurities become glaringly obvious. Rather than deal with them, they chose to turn their gaze and ears away. The voice tells us, among other things, that it intends to bring a shaking into our lives. Verse 26 says, Whose voice then shook the earth? But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. So this is a, a quote, I believe, out of the book of Haggai, the last chapter of Haggai, which is speaking to the end times. But, but God also brings a shaking into our lives in different seasons to agitate, to cause to tremble, emotion caused by wind. Why? 
Verse 27 answers that question. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Right? This is, this is I think, something that happens that happens on this plane of existence, right? So uh, we face a similar situation at the Bema Seat, right? All of our works, all of our service will be tested by fire, right? And the, and the, and the, the stubble and the hay will be burned away, and what's left was, it will only be that that was done in service out of pure, out of a pure motive and love for the Lord, right? And so God brings a shaking, a shaking into our lives at various times to shake away those things from us that are not pure, that are distortions, that are actually working against us. Okay, to blow away those things that we try and bring to God, the stuff we carry with us, that is unacceptable to God and cannot come into his presence. The only things we can carry with us to Mount Zion are the things which his grace has worked in our lives. We cannot bring our works. Over on the next page, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The kingdom, the summit, what lies at the end of the race of this life, cannot be blown away can't be taken away, can't be forfeited. It's there waiting for us. We need to keep going, and we need to keep growing, and we need to get these things right. Every one of us who are indeed true children of the Father will be brought to this city to stand before him. The journey is meant to shake off those things that are not fit to be in his presence. And again, the reality of the Bema Seat lies directly before each of us, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Whatever we carry there that has not been shed on the journey will be exposed, revealed, and burned away. And there is a quote there out of Revelation chapter 3 that speaks to the Laodicean church, which is actually representative of the church of our time, right? It says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Only what is done by the power of grace is acceptable to God. Grace produces a service in life to and for God that is acceptable, that is pleasing, it is reverent, there's a sense of shame, modesty, and humility, Godly fear, which is caution, discretion, and veneration. Why? Because verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. No impurities can remain in his presence. It must all be burned away. This is God's program for our lives. As we make the journey, as we climb to the summit, by the time we get to the end, our focus will be set, firmly set on getting there. And the only thing that will ultimately get us there is the irresistible desire to get to the place where God is. This is what lies behind everything that you experience, that you endure, that you suffer through, and that you rejoice in. That's why it's called irresistible grace. In that day, it will be as the hymn says, it will all be worth it when we see Jesus. We kind of keep going 
and we've got to keep growing. Okay, I think I'm going to end it there for tonight. That deals with chapter 12, and we'll finish up chapter 13 next week, and we will conclude this Bible study next week. Any questions or comments? Yeah, the fifth warning goes from Hebrews 12, 14 to 29. That's the warning, the fifth primary warning.